and can I wish you a happy new year. Uh, so as Richard said this morning, we're going to consider the last part of chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel and the first part of chapter 4. And our passage will cover three well-known moments in the life of Christ. His baptism, then his genealogy, and his, lastly, his confrontation with Satan in the wilderness. And we'll consider each of those moments in turn. But first, let me try and persuade you that this study is relevant to the situation in which we find ourselves at the start of the year 2022. These past two years have been hard. Of course, for some of the young parents here, they have experienced exuberant joy. But most of us have not. Many of us have withdrawn into ourselves, our lives have been privatized, and as a consequence, communal Christian life can sometimes feel like a bit of a chore. All over the Western world, church leaders report the same feeling, congregations full of this pervasive sense of caution and detachment. An unspiritual reaction to that situation would be to scold and berate people for their lack of commitment, but that would be both unjust and ineffective. A much better solution would be for all of us to catch a glimpse once again of the person of Jesus Christ. And that brings me to this passage. Luke has got to that point in his gospel where he is ready to introduce us to Jesus as the Son of God. John the Baptist has done his preparatory work. His message of repentance has cleared the way for God to enter onto the stage of our lives, to save us, to transform us. And he has told us to prepare for an encounter with Yahweh, the final judge of men, the one who bestows forgiveness. And in each of the three sections in our study today, Luke will refer to Jesus as the Son of God. He won't use that phrase again until we get to chapter 8, so it's obviously significant. We're going to have to have an encounter with the Son of God this morning, and there can be no better antidote to the jaded heart than that. So let's get underway by reading the first of our three sections in Luke chapter 3. We'll read verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. John the Baptist was baptizing those who had repented of their sins. He baptized them in the River Jordan. And his baptism, as Stevie said last week, was a baptism of repentance, as he lowered each candidate under the waters of judgment, he was using a symbol to declare that the candidate was spiritually dead. Their sin had brought them under the waters of God's judgment. But then he raised them up again, symbolizing the hope of a new beginning. It, now, that was a picture rooted in biblical history, of course. Just think of the story of Noah's Ark. The waters of God's judgment came pouring down upon sinful men, but those in the ark were brought safely through the waters of judgment into a new and cleansed creation. And so quietly, the Son of God joins the queue of sinful men standing in the mud of that riverbank. He makes no public statement of his own sinlessness. He doesn't stand up and shout out that he's merely joining sinful people as a representative. No. He just stands quietly and waits his turn. Luke pairs back his description of the Lord's baptism to its very bones. 
and the crowds seem to disappear into the background. Even John the Baptist gets no mention here. All we see is Jesus, having come up out of the water, praying. And suddenly the heavens open, and we hear God the Father say to Jesus, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then in full view of everyone, the Spirit of God descends from heaven in the form of a pure dove and rests on Jesus. We're seeing a sublime picture here of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, one being, revealed in three persons. Jesus is revealed to be holy divine, God of God and light of light. As we watch the dove descend, we're seeing what theologians call the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father to the Son. But the picture of a dove might contain another symbolism. You may recall that story of Noah again, Noah and his ark. And as the waters receded, he sent some birds out to find out how far the waters of judgment had receded. The ravens didn't come back, but the dove did return. Now, at the level of zoology, the reason is simple. Ravens are carrion, scavenger birds. They have no scruples about landing on the dead carcasses that floated on the surface of the water. But the dove was too pure to land on anything like that. So as we watch the Spirit of God descend and rest upon the person of Christ, we are perhaps seeing a vindication of Jesus' sinlessness. The gentle and holy Spirit of God can rest upon the perfect holiness of Christ. Remember that Jesus had chosen not to vindicate himself when he joined that queue of sinners on the muddy banks of the Jordan. But now he has been vindicated by the Father and the Spirit. So this first section teaches us that when Luke uses the term Son of God, he means that Christ is the second person of the Trinity. The incarnation, the incarnation took nothing away from the Son of God. The incarnation never involves subtraction. It only involves addition. We see the Son of God add humanity to himself. But the eternal Logos, the unoriginated Son of God, has lost none of his divine attributes. Our second section runs from verse 23 to verse 38, and it contains Luke's versions of the Lord Jesus' genealogy. We'll only read the beginning and the end of the section, mainly because some of the names in the middle are bear traps for any public reader of Scripture. So we start at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now we'll drop down to verse 34. The genealogy is working backwards, and he's got to the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now you know why I didn't read the middle section. The Gospel of Matthew famously begins with a genealogy, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. And Matthew divides his genealogy into three big sections, each of 14 generations. At the head of each of his three sections, we find firstly Abraham, then David, and then the man who rebuilt the temple. So Matthew's clearly introducing Jesus as the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament story. That, that's the purpose of the genealogy in Matthew. 
Matthew chapter 1 is a summary of all that God has done in the Old Testament. But Luke's genealogy is very different. He's placing it here at the end of chapter 3. seems almost random at first sight. You also notice he runs his generations backwards. He, he, he works backwards. And he doesn't stop at Abraham. He goes right back to Adam. Now, before we work out what Luke is up to, I want to address a common criticism of Luke's genealogy. Last year, I received at least six emails on this subject from a young man who had just become a Christian. Uh, but his faith had been shaken by arguments that he had read on an atheist website about Luke's genealogy. How could Matthew's list be so different from Luke's? And the traditional answer given by Christians is that Luke records the Lord's um, genealogy through Mary, while Matthew records the generations through Joseph. But that leaves an obvious problem, because in verse 23, we find Joseph's name listed in Luke's list. So what's going on? Well, there's a very early extra-biblical source. It's called the Palestinian Talmud, and it tells us the name of Mary's father. The Talmud records Mary's father's name as Eli. As we know, Mary had a sister, but there is no evidence that she had any brothers. And that would have meant that Eli's family name would have died out. Now, I don't need to tell those of you who know the Bible that the ending of a family line was regarded with horror in the ancient world. Just read the book of Ruth if you don't believe me. And so it was very common for a man uh, in that situation to adopt a younger man into his family. I'm not just talking of a biblical practice here. that The Romans did this sort of thing all the time to keep the family name from being lost. And so it's entirely plausible that Eli established his future son-in-law, Joseph, as his heir. It's actually not really all that different from a woman in our culture taking on her husband's name. Now, one of the reasons I'm attracted to that explanation is that in the original language, Luke doesn't use the word son. In every case but one, the Greek simply says, man X was of man Y, in the sense that X was Y's heir. And in, in the one case where he does use the word son, Luke uses it dismissively when he says that Jesus was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. So Luke is clearly not very interested in biology here. He's not worried about the passing on of DNA. He's much more concerned to prove that Jesus is a member of the human race. That's why at the very end, he can describe Adam as the son of God. Now, God didn't reproduce Adam. He created him. But no one would accuse Adam of not being fully human. Now, I'm sorry if the past couple of minutes was a bit technical for you, but these sorts of issues can disturb the minds of young believers. So we now take a step back and ask ourselves, what is Luke's purpose with this genealogy? Notice that in tracing the Lord's humanity right back to Adam, he can call Jesus the Son of God in a different sense from the one we previously considered. Now he is the Son of God by virtue of being a member of the human race. Christ was born of a woman like the rest of us. He's a full member of the human race. His human nature was created by God. Jesus had his own unique DNA, but so had Adam. And as, just, as I've just said, no one could accuse Adam of not being fully human. So I think Luke is balancing the teaching he gave us in the first section with this. The Lord's baptism revealed that Jesus Christ is fully God, but this genealogy reveals that Jesus Christ is fully human. Now, those two statements raise an obvious problem. How could that ever happen? Can someone be both fully God and fully man at the same time? 
Now, it isn't all that difficult to think that God took on the form of a human being and walked among us as some sort of pretend man. But Luke has just argued that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully human. How is such a thing possible? It's not enough to say that Christ had a physical body. If he was fully human, then he also had a human nature, a rational soul made up of mind, emotions, and will. This means that Jesus' mind was subject to the same laws of perception and memory and logic and development that govern all of us. It's Luke who tells us that the child Jesus grew in wisdom just as he grew in physical stature. He observed, he learned, he remembered, he applied. So how can we square that idea with the idea that the Lord Jesus never stopped being all-knowing and all-powerful? Well, it seems to me that the third and final section in our passage will address that difficulty. It does much more than that, of course, but at one level, that's what it does. So let's read it together from Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Luke finished his genealogy by mentioning Adam. So it isn't all that surprising that this final section reminds us very much of the Garden of Eden. We find the ancient serpent, Satan himself, tempting a man to eat food. The scene is very different, of course. Eden was a beautiful and fruitful place, bursting with goodness and life. But Christ has been driven into the wilderness, a howling wasteland where nothing productive grew. There's an interesting contrast in verses 1 and 2. Christ is full of the Holy Spirit, but his stomach is empty. The gnawing pain of hunger had developed to the point where Jesus is almost starving to death. And that raises an interesting question for physical creatures like us. What good is the Holy Spirit to a man whose physical needs are not being met? I'm sure that question rose up in the minds of the children of Israel when they wandered around the wilderness of Sinai for 40 years. This passage is saturated with words from the ancient book of Deuteronomy. And the purpose of that ancient book was to tell God's people how they should live for God in their daily lives. Well, that sort of talk is all very well when there's a nice chicken roasting over the fire. But what good does it do when the children are crying from hunger? I have no doubt a few of them muttered under their breath that it was all very, all very well for God to give these pieces of advice while he sat up there in his comfortable heaven. 
Satan had chose, chosen his moment well. He comes alongside Jesus at this moment of real vulnerability and tempts him to use his divine powers to turn stones into bread. That's not something you or I could be tempted to do. But the Son of God, remember, had lost none of his divine powers. It would have been so easy. No one was looking. But look at how Christ answers the tempter. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The Son of God chose to live as a man. He chose to experience his consciousness within the fabric of a human personality. All the limitations of being human were freely chosen. That's how we can square the circle of someone being fully God and fully man. Donald MacLeod, the Scottish theologian, says, to be all-powerful like being all-knowing was a luxury always within reach, but incompatible with his rules of engagement. He chose to serve within the limitations of finitude. I love that thought. Jesus chose to live within the limitations and the vulnerabilities of being human right from the very start. I wonder what it was like for the eternal creator to feel rough straw pricking his infant skin. I wonder what it was like for the eternal creator to experience life as a frightened toddler being shushed by his mother as she and Joseph fled from Herod's soldiers. What did that do for his subconscious? I wonder what it was like for the eternal creator as a 12-year-old boy, so alone and friendless, so missing his real home that he found comfort in the stones of the temple. I wonder, has a bitter thought ever erupted into your mind? The thought that it's easy for God to command us to trust and obey, to depend on him, while he sits on his throne up in heaven and we suffer down here. Well, look at Christ in the desert, almost fainting with starvation. He grits his teeth. He forces his parched lips to frame the words, man shall not live by bread alone. What loyalty he showed to us. What trusting obedience to his father. As we move through these three temptations, Luke will show us how the Lord Jesus, fully God and fully human, is the second man, the last Adam, who succeeds where the first Adam failed. He's going to show us what loyalty means. The Lord faced, as we read, three devilishly clever temptations. The first was to turn stones into bread. The second was to compromise his mission by working within Satan's existing power structures. And the final one was the temptation to demand specific outcomes from God, to take the initiative and to demand that God the Father back him up. As we walk through each of them, we won't just shake our heads in awe at the Lord's loyalty and filial obedience. We're going to learn practical lessons for our own lives in the year ahead. So what was the real temptation in the suggestion to turn stones into bread? At its heart, I think it was to live a life independent of his father. That was the test which Adam and Eve failed in the Garden of Eden. They chose to use the gifts of creation to further their own interests, even if it meant breaking a divine boundary. Back in Eden, Satan promised Adam and Eve uh, intellectual, aesthetic, and physical satisfaction. Delights if only they would give up this childish notion of obeying God's word. But now watch the last Adam succeed where the first Adam failed. He refused to operate independently from his father. Even when he was dying from starvation, he refused to stop trusting his father in heaven. Who knows what temptations lie up ahead in 2022? Maybe our eyes will light up at the possibility of some lovely thing entering into our lives. 
a loving relationship with a decent man or woman who happens not to be a Christian believer. An amazing business opportunity that unfortunately requires you to turn a blind eye to some irregularities. A taste for a nice glass of wine that inexorably becomes a regulating principle that governs your daily life. When we give in to temptations like that, we are really saying that our psychological and physical well-being always trumps the religious stuff. We're saying that when all the chips are down, life is about bread. Well, when those temptations arise, remember the parched lips of a starving man form the words, man shall not live by bread alone. In those moments when the tempter is whispering in your ear, you can follow your Lord by demonstrating that you really believe that ultimate satisfaction comes from depending upon God. Satan's second temptation began when he took Christ up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, all the glittering civilizations that today we might see if we stood on London Bridge or flew over the gleaming skyscrapers of New York or Shanghai or Tokyo. And he offered Christ everything he could possibly hope for if he would only worship Satan. Now, we shouldn't think that Satan wanted the Lord to bow down in adoration and admiration. Satan is never unrealistic. But if I was to use the language of some old financier or a political grandee, I might paraphrase his temptation like this. Look, old boy, I hold the purse strings here. I call the shots when it comes to political or cultural power. So work with me. Don't push against the grain of life. I can really help you do great things if only you'll cooperate with me. Satan does have real authority. Even though he has been cast out of God's immediate presence, he still wields considerable power. And he tempts Christ to compromise, to be sufficiently pragmatic to work within Satan's power structures rather than stand outside of them. That's how things get done down here, young man, Satan might say. So work within the reality you find yourself. The book of the Revelation tells us that one day Satan will strike a deal like that with a man. Paul calls that individual the man of sin. But the Lord Jesus' refusal to accept any created being as a primary source of authority, well, it led him eventually to the cross, didn't it? It was Satan's power structures who did Christ to death. And in the end, they cast him outside of the walls of the city of man. Maybe some old grantee in hell shook his head. Such potential, that young man. If only he had worked with us rather than against us. But Christ refused to do a deal with the devil. He could have had instant worldwide popularity and success if he had just compromised with the powers that rule this fallen world. But we watch his battered body being washed by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. It looked like a sorry end to his life story. That's what happens when you don't compromise. But, says Paul, Christ is indeed raised from the dead. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Under the earth. Did you get that? As we read about the merchants in Revelation wailing as the walls of Babylon the Great fall, we get a sense of the shrieks in hell as its power structures come crashing down, as God's mighty strength drew the risen Christ through the serried ranks of angels into the very throne room of heaven. 
and they were undermined because the Lord Jesus refused to compromise. You shall worship the Lord your God, he said, and him only shall you serve. That story is an important lesson for churches to learn. On far too many occasions, various elements within Christendom have done a deal with the devil. They've quite quietly decided to compromise, to work with the grain of culture rather than against it. So instead of the thundering prophetic voice of John the Baptist, we've ended up with politicians in cassocks. I was talking to a pastor of a church who happens to be situated in a really aggressively progressive country. The political and cultural elite pursue the goals of the progressive left with intimidating force. And my friend was thanking this church here in Belfast for our stand on issues related to human sexuality and gender. And he said this, I couldn't ever preach on those subjects. It's written into my contract that I'm not allowed to do so. Any church which binds the hands and feet of its Bible teachers like that has done a deal with the devil. They have compromised with the value system of this world. The third and final temptation is the most subtle. Satan takes Christ in his imagination to the highest point of the temple and suggests that he throw himself down so that God would be forced to perform a miracle and catch him midair and raise him up. What spectacular evidence of God's power. How honoring it would have been to Christ to have been saved in such a way. So what was the temptation? It was to demand a specific outcome of God. Let's imagine that just before Jesus walked into the Jordan to be baptized, he had addressed a crowd. Now listen to everyone, he says. I am sinless, and God the Father is going to prove that by opening the heavens. You will all hear his voice. You'll see the Spirit descend like a dove. Now, wouldn't that have been effective, more effective, if Jesus had insisted on that outcome and God the Father had just rode in behind him? But that would have been to usurp the role of God the Father. When you think about it, Jesus did descend from a pinnacle, and he did get raised up again. In fact, he descended into the ground, lay in a cold tomb for three days. But when you read the story of that descent, you'll notice that every step was taken in obedience to the Father's will. Our Lord never forced his Father to back him. He never demanded an outcome. Now, that has really practical implications for us. Who knows what twists and turns lie up ahead for us in 2022? Perhaps we might find ourselves listening to a consultant tell us that we have cancer. Or we may have to watch a loved one suffer and die. And we will be forced to reject the temptation to demand an outcome from God. Of course, we can plead. Of course, we ask Him for what we long for. But every prayer should end, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That's because Christian faith is faith in a person, not faith in an outcome. It's faith in God. I'll never forget talking to a young African man who had been told by his so-called apostle to stretch himself out on the grave of his dead friend to pray for resurrection. But nothing happened, he said, with a disillusioned shrug of the shoulders. Never be tempted to demand a specific outcome from God, even if you're convinced that it will lead to spiritual progress. So we're done for today. Jesus Christ has been introduced to us as the Son of God. 
He's the Son of God because He's the second person of the Trinity. He's fully divine. But secondly, He's the Son of God because He's the last Adam, the one who shares our humanity. He is fully human. And He is the Son of God because He lives as a true Son of God. He shows unswerving loyalty to His Father in heaven. As we reflected upon that loyalty, we maybe gleaned three resolutions for the year 2022. We can live as true sons and daughters of the Most High if we resolve to abide by three principles in the year ahead. Don't live independently of God. Don't compromise with the powers of this world. And don't demand outcomes from God. May God bless His Word to our hearts.